Hello, Ben Smith. Hello, Riff Manford. Hello, Ewan McLeod. Hello. And Ewan McLeod. Super duper. Let's do this thing, shall we? Now, wait a minute. Can we just talk about how we do the hellos? Because I think that's a bit flat now and again. Right. Can we just do a bit more high energy this time? Yeah, I did get some feedback that it was a bit low energy last time. Okay, more exciting. <laughs> Rafe, can you say hi? Like hi. All right, I double dare you to do that. Never. Double dare you. Ever say that. This is the last of the season, so. Shouldn't we do something cool? No. <laughs> we, we've avoided it for the rest of the season. <laughs> Why <don't we> start now? <laughs> Welcome to 361, a podcast about mobile tech and the world around it. My name's Ben Smith. I'm Ewan McLeod. And I'm Rafe Blanford. This is Season 17, Episode 10, and this week we're talking about hacking Google traffic, Sonos' recent customer backlash, and we're saying goodbye to BlackBerry hardware. Welcome back, chaps, to the last episode of the season. How are you doing? Ooh, the last episode. Hello, everyone. Yes, hello. Rock on. Is that high energy enough? Rafe Blanford in central London. Ewan McLeod with us still in the UK. It's very exciting. It's a fully UK-based episode. In Hampshire. Indeed, that's right. And uh, what's the weather like in Hampshire? Uh, is it wrong? Is it, okay, it is dark outside. Okay, and a little chilly. Revelations. Well, it's just, it is dark. Yeah. That's my initial response to you. We're always speaking in the evening. It's a joke that's going to age badly for people who've only ever listened when you were in the UK, where they don't know the Denmark story. But let's move on. Rafe Blanford, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Ben. Good. A pleasure to speak to you. What time was this evening's podcast recording at, Rafe Blanford? Well, it was meant to be at 8.30. It's now 9.30. And it may be something to do with the fact that I couldn't lay my hand on one of the four USB to USB-C dongles that Ben has within easy reach because I left them at work and so I had to find another way to plug in the microphone. And uh, just for the avoidance of doubt, when you move countries and time zones, should your calendar items stay at the same time as they were or should they move because you're not in the same time zone? I mean, I'm only asking you and McLeod just speculatively. Hypothetically, if somebody was to move from Denmark to the UK. No, it's because you sent the invite to my, it says, Ewan hyphen do not use right? I don't use that calendar. So I need to speak to you. I need to have words with you about where you send the calendar invites. I think we should also show a bit of gratitude to Ewan because when we found out that he had not been able to read a simple calendar invite that was in fact sent to the right address, we found out that he was having a pre-recording sauna. So he has sacrificed mightily to be part of this episode. And I think we should show our due respect and gratitude for that. Thanks, Ewan. I wasn't in the sauna, just to be clear, because that would be bad for the phone and the Apple Watch. Anyway. You've both changed. You've really changed. Anyways, last one of the season this time in the new format. Thank you to everyone who's contacted us to say they like the new format. Mm. We'll try and keep it going. I also wanted to just say thank you to everyone who'd um, signed up on Patreon and was still a supporter. At the beginning of next season, we're going to turn the Patreon back on and uh, we're going to use it to fund the cost of production of the show. What are they? I hear you hypothetically asking. Well, Bandwidth, hosting, and of course, Mark, our excellent editor, who deserves to be paid for his time. Anyone who's Mm. subjected to this professionally needs extensive counselling support after the fact. And so a small fund for booze and indeed other various pain-killing devices for Mark. But 
Let's crack on with the <laughs> show then this evening. Three topics as usual. And you, McLeod, mm. first up, we're going to talk about, well, I've written here Google Maps traffic hack, but it's cooler than that, isn't it? So let's just talk about it because it's very much in the news, but we have opinions. Yes. This is a very smart artiste who has put 99 phones in a little buggy thing and driven around a city street or various different city streets. And each of the phones, by the way, is running Google Maps. Ah. And he's kind of walking around these streets and he's wondering if he could influence the traffic navigation. And you know how you often will see Google, if you're using Google Maps, you'll see the amber or the red based on traffic patterns and ideally based on live traffic. What he does is tell Google or trick Google into assuming that there's a hundred cars in a particular side road and therefore that changes people's navigation choices live. He was just doing it as a test, which I think was uh, really interesting. It's a, one of those kind of concept art pieces. Can you influence the mapping? What does that mean? And it's one of those, it's art if it makes you think. So it certainly is art, right? Because we are exercised by it. I think this is brilliant. So his name is Simon Weckert, and I think he's certainly from Berlin, and I'm assuming that the video was made in Berlin. That's what I thought, yeah. And the video is fantastic because he's got these 99 handsets in like a child's trolley that is pulling down the streets, literally down the dotted line in the middle of the street, and there's no vehicles in any of the shots <laughs> moving. empty streets. Yeah. All the vehicles are parked. So obviously... Google Maps would think that was green, but as you say, you and you know, tracking 99 handsets moving that slowly down the streets, Google Maps lights up red, and yep. he, in his piece, speculates around what impacts that would have on people who do dynamic routing, you know, mm. courier firms, Uber, Me? all that kind of stuff. Well, I do dynamic, don't you do dynamic routing? Well, I do, so I use Waze loads, so I assume because yep. Waze is owned by Google, it would take that same feed. Well, Google does dynamic as well, by the way, just Google Maps. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tend to use Waze because I find that the suggestions are more obvious. It's more obvious that you're being rerouted as you go. I've always sort of felt I trusted it a bit more. See, I think this is where both of you need your heads examined. Are you using Waze as well, Blanford? Uh, no. Okay, right. So I, I, I just, for the way he was nodding, you know, or not nodding, I thought he was a, you know, a Waze user. But come on, you and Rafe is driven. He doesn't drive. That's true. Do your drivers. Can you ask them next time you're speaking to them? Right. <laughs> Just to entertain ourselves here. <laughs> That's cool, yeah. I do use Waze now and again, but I think Google Maps, it feels more up-to-date than Waze in my way. Anyway, go on. So this guy's done this piece and the internet's going mad for it today. And it should, because it's really cool demonstration. And he's just done the legwork, basically, to get these 99 handsets. But Rafe, I assumed that Google would be wise to this kind of hacking and I mean, he's done it for entertainment purposes and as an art piece, but I assumed that Google would already protect against this kind of sort of subverting, you know, that kind of data. Yes, I was kind of surprised to read this and see what amounted to a relatively small number of phones. But then I thought about it a bit more. And actually, in any given road or section, you probably don't have that many people using Google Maps. Yeah, 99 on a road. Yeah. And so that was sufficient tricky. And actually, yeah. I was kind of surprised that that wasn't actually so many that it would trigger an alert because I think it'd be difficult to assess how many in any given city or mm. street were using it. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of the on-demand taxi cab companies do have something like that. The information goes back to a similar location. I mean, frequently we'll see an Uber driver using Waze or something similar, but it's a great example of how 
a relatively small number of devices are then interpreted upwards to be a big thing, but also I suspect just not tight enough on the kind of location because presumably these devices are also reporting their location. So 100 all in the same red trolley isn't the same as 100 spread out through the lengths of the street. But I suspect it's the fuzziness of those kind of algorithms or those kind of calculations to work out what it was. And Google have probably worked very hard to make sure that they infer the correct thing. But you know, an edge case like this means it kind of breaks it. Did he do it with 15? Do you think, I mean, I haven't watched the full video. I'm wondering if he did it with 15, with 20, with 25. You know, how many phones does it take to trick Google? How many phones gets you to orange? I think that's an interesting one. And what I don't know from what I've read is which street he was working on, because presumably the answer to that question is it depends on how many cars there are normally traveling along this street. Because I was thinking, same as Rafe alluded to, that actually if you picked bits of central London where nearly everybody's got a Google-powered mobile phone doing navigation and the traffic flow is really heavy, perhaps you'd need 500. You know, I was thinking about malicious uses. You know, how do I stop all the cars going over Westminster Bridge in central London? You know, and you think about the number of vehicles, you'd have to do hundreds and hundreds of handsets perhaps. But it's really interesting to see. And my mind immediately went to how could you use this for good or for evil? I mean, you know, mm. the temptation is to say, oh, could you disrupt a city? Could you virtually clog up various highways by just putting lots of mobile devices, maybe even simulated mobile devices there? And could you do something evil, Rafe? Have you ever heard of anybody trying to sort of hack this kind of data in the past? I can't say I've ever heard of this before, but I think this does highlight the fragility of these crowdsourced data systems. And it's not just Google that does this. You know, there's a lot of them and it's the same with a relatively small number of reviews on TripAdvisor can bias the overall score or the system. But this is kind of interesting because it's in real time. And then actually, I think the consequences of having this kind of data wrong, yes, it potentially can be used for evil. I mean, Ewan alluded to this in terms of the way that couriers might be redirected or Uber or any of the other taxi firms, but also individuals. And we know that some municipalities are starting to use this data to kind of do city planning and do sort of allocation of where kind of resources go both in terms of like rubbish trucks and things like that i think it's hard to pull that off over the long term but certainly for point disruptions and your mind immediately goes to things like climate strike for example could make it look like all the roads in central london were congested and because there are so many people that now rely on that sort of thing you could absolutely reroute or have people take a lot longer on their journey and that kind of is a slightly more sophisticated version some of the things of climbing on top of the DLR and the other transport options that they did. And, you know, it's not hard to imagine for a relatively small number of devices, you would be able to clog up maybe the very centre around Westminster or cause diversions or whatever. I think it's also interesting to think about it from the good point of view. Whether it's good is kind of rather depends on your point of view, because not necessarily for traffic congestion, but Google also uses this kind of data to show how popular certain areas are. And if you look at Google Maps, you'll see heat maps to integrate pedestrian activity, for example. And I'm pretty sure they will be relying on the same kind of data. So potentially, you could make a venue appear more popular than it is. If you've looked at places on Google recently, you'll see they have a bar chart that shows when an area is busy. Now, 
could you do that to make somewhere appear more popular and therefore get more people appear or to extend that so-called pedestrian or retail friendly zone that tends to show up on the hot maps? Or less. It's actually harder to do less because you can't remove things, but you can certainly inflate the numbers relatively easily using this technique. And it does make me wonder, you know, these are devices sitting in a certain location being trundled along the road. Would it be that hard to actually spoof this and work out what's being sent to Google servers and then kind of do it automatically? And that's where you get kind of much more into black hat territory away from this kind of conceptual Mm. or performance art. I mean, I think it's a great piece of performance art, but I can't imagine it would be that difficult to, you know, basically fake or have signals generated, you know, much like happens when people try to rig voting mechanisms or when they're doing astroturfing in app store reviews. This can have a, a bit more of a profound impact. And we know that people like TripAdvisor and Google actually have mechanisms to stop this and kind of bot attacks. But this stuff is getting more sophisticated. And I suspect the reason that this one works is because there was enough sophistication to it in that there was something moving up and down the street. It was a group of phones. So the kind of data set that was being generated lay within the bounds that was able to hack, in inverted commas, the system. And mm. there is so many of these things now that rely on effectively, and it's not deliberately submitted data by users, which is really the case for reviews and things like this. It's just that background data that's being collected all the time. So yeah, to me, it's really interesting. And Google is very dependent on this kind of data. The interesting thing, of course, all your network operator providers actually have the real version of this because they have all of the devices on all of the time. Yeah. So Google is kind of like a light version. Yeah. Which is useless and these network operators did absolutely nothing with it. I mean, they could really have monetized that, you know. <laughs> well, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Do you remember when they could have done this properly? I mean, Telefonica has a division that actually monetizes this and actually they tend to sell it to municipalities. Mm. But it's just a useful reminder of just how much data and what that's being used for uh, of mobile devices that are in our pockets and all the time. So it's a really interesting one to think about. I immediately thought back to we talked ages ago about how military bases were being discovered by Strava because soldiers oh. using their phones to track workouts running around an airfield in a place that there wasn't supposed to be an airfield. So I wondered if you could do counter espionage by faking airfields, by dragging loads of Strava handsets around a square where there isn't an airfield and then see who goes there to look. <laughs> yep. yeah. The other thing, Rafe, we talked about the ability to spoof. And even if it's not possible to spoof from simulators, if Google's able to identify data that comes from simulators, you could take a click farm and have fake GPS data. Because when we talked about the Shanghai Harbour and we talked about how easy it is to feed a device fake GPS signals now, particularly Mm. when you're not trying to do anything complicated like the hacking they did there, that there was loads of ways that that could be examined. So that was fascinating. And I think it benefited from being visual enough that even I could understand it by looking at it. So if you haven't seen the video, uh, if you're the only person on the internet who hasn't seen the video, go to 361podcast.com and I'll link it in the show notes for this episode. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about Sonos. Uh, There's been a right old hoo-ha about some decisions that Sonos have made recently. And whilst I concede that they have not done themselves any favours with the way they've communicated stuff, Mm. it's been interesting to see what a massive overreaction, in my view. Rafe, why don't you lay the groundwork? Yeah. Take us back to the start here, because this is a non-story, I think. Come on. Well, I think there were two parts to this recently, one of which was Sonos announcing a program by which you'd be able to upgrade or update your devices to a newer model. 
And as part of that, they kind of had what they described as putting the existing devices into recycle mode, which was effectively bricking the devices so they couldn't be recycled. And so that caused a lot of comment because there was nothing wrong with the devices and they could have been sent off to a recycling centre. And generally the rule is with this kind of recycling, the very best thing is to kind of refurbish it. Only then do you think about breaking it down into its constituent parts and either recycling components or recycling metal. And then at the bottom of that kind of funnel is actually disposing of it in a safe manner or in a more approved manner. And what Sonos were effectively doing was taking away that top option because it was effectively destroying a second-hand market. So that was one bit. And I, I know there was a response that we'll get to that in a moment. But then they kind of followed up one PR storm with kind of another one where they talked about the older devices effectively going out of support and would no longer be supported. And so some of their original backers who were on the very first devices were being told effectively that they would no longer be supported and that might mean they'd not be able to get certain features. And partly this was about a communications issue there, but it was some of their most loyal and long-standing users. And it does bring up an interesting point in general about how long you should expect your smart home technology to last, because I suspect there's plenty of people out there using speakers that are 30 plus years old and so it was should kind of similar smart connected devices have that kind of shelf life or life cycle mm. and again there was a bit of a response from users and consumers about that i kind of didn't follow it closely but i would be sympathetic to both of those those both sound like bad things that sonos was doing which for a company that has always been fairly sure-footed in terms of responding to consumers and having good support and being good about being agnostic about the things that it worked with and, you know, emphasis on high quality user experience. This did feel like two missteps. But they fixed it, you know, which was, I mean, obvious, you know, massive hoo-ha in the media. Then the CEO goes, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. We didn't mean that. Uh, Let's move on. Yeah, but you kind of did. They did because underneath that, which is quite ironic, is the post saying, we are stopping support. They published the one saying, yeah, we're stopping it thanks, bye. And then the next post on their blog says, no, 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 we didn't mean that. We've learned from it. Thank you. <laughs> Precisely, you know, a week before they said, yeah, we're stopping it. It doesn't look good. There's an interesting question, I think, about how these companies monetize though, right? Because it's quite an arse, isn't it? I mean, I'm talking technically here. If you sell all these products and then that's great, you've made lots of money. How do you make more money from these people? Was this their slightly lame attempt at trying to encourage people to upgrade, do you think? Well, I think it's difficult to see inside the kind of mind of someone else. Go on, Ben. What are you thinking? I think I disagree. And I think a lot of people have chosen not to think about this in sufficient depth or just to take surface level reporting because, Rafe, you alluded to this, but some of my Sonos kit is affected by this. You know, I've skin in the game far less than some of the other people I've spoken to who are affected by this, but a couple of hundred quid's worth of kit affected by this. and. This stuff is all more than nine years old and will continue to keep working. So I think, you know, I was really surprised by the amount of backlash from people who I thought would take the trouble to understand what was being said, because it's typically a a sort of a tech savvy audience Mm. that has these things. But actually, almost it was the opposite. It was almost a bit of a tantrum that, well, my kit's going to break. And I said, no, it's, it's not. It's going to keep working. How do you? Well, they're going to prevent it from working with new devices. Well, Yes, they are. But if your old devices and your new devices are grouped together, then they have to be compatible. And that's the only way they're found to make nine year plus old devices compatible. Mm. So, I mean, I thought, well, look, the device is going to keep working. 
it's only going to not work with third-party sort of connected streaming services that don't continue to support it. So over time, it's probably going to stop working. But actually, how realistically can I expect that it will just, you know, carry on being supported like that? I know it's sympathetic to the argument about recycle mode, but there's a couple of important nuances here. One is that recycle mode only applies to those devices which are end of life. So what they're saying is don't put unsupported devices on the secondary market because you'll sell them to people who don't realise that these are out of support now. Right. So these only apply to these nine-year-old plus devices. And then secondly, the devices have DRM keys and things like that on them, which are specific to you. You know, they have data about you on them as part of that. And part of the effort clumsily expressed was to make sure that these devices couldn't be used to access you know, your services effectively so that you couldn't buy your Sonos mm. device and take encryption keys and those sorts of things off it. And whilst it's clumsy, a tandem of don't sell secondhand devices that can't be supported and don't do recycling programs that risk other people getting your data felt pretty reasonable to me. Mm. And you know, I was trying to think of all the things that I've got that are still supported that far out. And actually, even the Apple devices, everybody raves about Apple providing, you know, support and longevity for devices well beyond anybody else. And I've got very old Apple hardware that still works. Really? So we've got an old laptop in the kitchen. I've got an old iPad in the cupboard that we use for long journeys with the boy. But it's not getting new OS updates. You know, I'm not horrified that they're not maintaining it anymore because it's Mm -hmm. 10, 11, 12 years old. And so I thought Sonos got unnecessarily bad rap for this. Mm. It does speak to the importance of getting your communication strategy right. And I kind of land somewhere in the middle on this in that I really can't see an excuse for the recycling mode if you're going to the trouble to kind of have a software update and the ability to do that and sort of bricking it after 30 days. You can do a software update that removes the user-sensitive information and kind of makes it ready for second-hand mode. And there are plenty of things that get sold second-hand that are kind of no longer supported by their manufacturers, and that's reflected in their pricing. But Rafe, no one is forcing owners to put things into recycle mode. If you want to dispose of these devices, it's an option that you can follow. But if you don't, don't put it in recycle mode. I do see that there's a consumer choice there, but Sonos is deliberately destroying value within the logistics chain by making this decision. And that's something that is difficult to support when there is kind of such a strong emphasis around reuse, upcycling, recycling now. And I think a responsible company should do better than that. Yeah. In the end, you know, the way they've explained it, and as you said, there is a choice here, but they were effectively pushing this through an upgrade program and people do like to get discounts. So it was also playing on human psychology. I agree with you. They probably got an unfair amount of criticism for this. But like I say, I'd also expect like a modern company to think about this more carefully. Where I do agree with the kind of definitely the storm in the teacup thing is on these older devices. And at some point you do have to accept that maintaining backwards compatibility around a full ecosystem of devices is hard to achieve. And actually the fact that Sonos have gone so long it's kind of okay. I mean, I do remember, I think it was a couple of years back where they end of life, their original remote control, which had a nice screen on it. And this was kind of before the eras of really nice phones. And actually it was a pleasure to use and frankly still is when it works. This is kind of an extension of that in some ways. And so I go, yeah, that's the price you pay at the moment for smart connected devices. They've come on so much in the last 10 years and have gone through various stands and the way they talk to each other. And actually, we're now getting to the point where Sonos is building in 
the smart assistants, whether that's Alexa or something else. But I can understand the frustration of people. And I think it simply comes down to the fact that people expect things in the home, particularly white goods, and I would include speakers and stereos in that, Mm. to have a life cycle that is between 10 and 20 years. That's kind of what you see the typical replacement for things like ovens and fridges. And even that feels sometimes a bit much. And so they are being measured against that standard, not the standard of a smartphone that people expect to last maybe two to five years. Yeah. And that's where I think they come across the problem. So I can understand the frustration, but it betrays a lack of understanding of the benefits that you're getting from a smart device and the fact that that whole ecosystem and way of operating has moved an incredible distance in the last 10 years, not just the rise of mobile, but now the rise of smart assistants, voice and everything else. I think my mental comparator before we had the conversation was tellies. Yeah. Mm. You know, I, I expect them to have a reasonable longevity, but the Samsung TV that we've got downstairs in our lounge is seven or eight years old. And some of the original apps and things on it have been decommissioned and, you know, it does less, but it continues to work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's essentially where this Sonos kit is. It'll do less and less and less over time, but it continues to work. What's the damage? Would you not buy Sonos ongoing now? I think they fluffed their messaging. I take Rose's point about the e-waste. And if they were a bigger company, perhaps I would expect more, but I still perceive them to be quite a small company and the burden mm. of, you know, releasing software to purge old devices and all that kind of stuff. I, I suppose I sort of mentally assumed that that was beyond them, but perhaps they should do that. Mm. But I mean, my Play 5, I think is like 11 years old. Jeez, 11 years old. The youngest device affected by this issue is nine years old. Now, They have sold some of those devices comparatively recently, but the design is a nine-year-old one. Oh, okay, right, 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 right. Isn't the challenge here, though, that Sonos kind of builds itself as being able to build up a portfolio or ecosystem of devices within the home, and in order to keep investing that and expending that through other rooms, some of these no longer work within that system or the newer features, and effectively that forces you potentially to have to upgrade the older devices or replace them. Yeah, I mean, if you're very heavily invested in it and you have a blend of old and new stuff, I guess it's going to be tricky. But I was really surprised because I think my initial thinking was, oh, yeah, God, that's been going for a long time. You know, I'm not surprised that doesn't do the latest Spotify or Mm -hmm. the latest Apple Music because, you know, these are streaming services with standards and audio qualities that were never dreamed of when this hardware was devised. And I sort of thought, oh gosh, I'm I'm actually quite grateful I got that long out of the device. But I take Rose's point that if you think of this as a fridge rather than a TV, then your model's completely different. Mm. We need to move on because we've run out of time on this. But I suppose the question I'd pose to listeners is, if this happens to you, would you replace your Sonos? And I'm thinking maybe not. Not because I think they did a bad job, not to punish the company, but actually I don't need to now because our Sonos is nearly always just streaming music and our voice assistants do that for us. In fact, nine times out of 10, the music we stream on our Sonos is triggered by our voice assistants. Interesting. So a decent quality voice assistant, which is definitely disposable because all the various echoes and things that we've got around the house are, you know, sort of 100, 150 pounds, mm. which are, you know, they'll last a few years, but we don't expect to get a Sonos style lifespan out of them. They play music to a good enough standard, but we're not audiophiles. This is kitchen music. This is not considered listening. Mm-hmm. So let us know what you think about that in the comments. Yeah. I would be interested to see that I, I got 
my knuckles wrapped badly on Twitter by people who thought I was badly wrong. So I've stopped having opinions on the internet for a while. So <laughs> this would be a mistake. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. Third topic. It's a sad day for you and me, at least you and... Uh, yeah. This is probably, this is probably the end of Blackberry mm-hmm. as we know it. Yes. Reading the news today, TCL, who is the, Rafe, help me out here, Chinese company? That's correct, yes. Yeah, the Chinese company that licensed the BlackBerry brand for hardware, mobile devices, after BlackBerry itself stopped manufacturing them directly, has announced that it won't be making any more devices and the current ones will only be supported for a couple more years. So unless something truly amazing happens, this is the end of the road for BlackBerry smartphones. And... I, for one, am quite sad because I had a 9790 and then a Bold, and there was a time where that was just the best way to do smartphones. It was phenomenal, wasn't it? That device, the blue one, what was the blue one called? Was it 98 something? The blue one. Or 9630? I love doing tech podcasting with you. (laughs) The plastic one from T-Mobile in the UK. I got that with their £10 a month unlimited data because they didn't have a billing system for it to bill you so they just gave you you know free data everywhere uh not that you used much on the blackberry but it changed my life i mean as an entrepreneur so i was constantly traveling and it was quite difficult to get connectivity the way i got connectivity in different cities around europe and internationally was using an spv Do you remember those kind of windows phones and then you had to line up that with uh, your laptop and the infrared port that would do 9600 i mean it can was i just, just stop you there yeah go on Ralph Blanford is about to explain to you that that wasn't a Windows phone. That was... Uh, oh, sorry. Well, yeah, okay, that was a Microsoft yeah. Windows Mobile. Are you happy with that, Blanford? That's right. Also, what you're talking about is the BlackBerry 7230. Thank you for that. Just to be, you know, precise here. Thank you. Thank you. Is that the blue one? The blue one, yes? It is the blue one, yes. Yeah, thank you. Right. With right. the kind of the bigger screen and slightly kind of... Uh, is it grey with colours screen? Yeah, yeah. and diagonal looking keyboard. Diagonal keyboard. The thing that's interesting here for me is actually BlackBerry's been gone for a while, but these are the Android devices and oh, of course, TLC, right, yes. they're yes. also licensing Alcatel and they were producing the BlackBerry Android devices. I think I'm right in saying it was kind of the key one was one of the ones they announced and yeah, they're going to stop on August the 31st and then it's kind of two years of support. And actually some of these Android devices, it was a, a nice thing because you were getting the BlackBerry keyboard, the kind of the keyboard that was on the BlackBerry Bold mm. on an Android device. And for some people, that was a, a nice thing to have, plus some of the software. That Bold keyboard, yeah. But there's really only one thing I'm going to say here, and that's, now you know how I feel. What? <laughs> no, this is different. This was different because we could, we could see Nokia imploding. We, all of us could see it, even you, Blanford, just you weren't allowed to say it. I think it's quite accurate, right? Mm-hmm. With BlackBerry, there was a point, and I suppose there was a point with Nokia as well, but with BlackBerry, it did change my life. It meant that I was able to get away from a laptop. Remember, going to a hotel in Paris or in any, any European city, any city internationally, you know, it was really, really difficult at this point to get data, to get internet, to get connectivity. And I was able to transact wherever I was, and the customers didn't know where I was, didn't matter where I was. They were just getting emails where I was always in touch with them. And it was just an immensely, immensely useful way to stay in touch. So you were probably on the proper full-on enterprise offering with the special servers. Yeah. The first year I used um, the IMAP and then I got the, the BEZ. So they had these two tiers of service, the enterprise and the more consumer grade. Yeah. And I used to like the consumer grade service because although 
it was very complicated to work out how it worked. Gmail, the Gmail client on a BlackBerry oh, Bold. The Gmail was client, jeez. With keyboard shortcuts yes. that... Why? Just press Y. And, oh my God, yeah, it was amazing. It was e, the fastest, yeah. easiest way to do email. Archive, and archive, 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 yeah. I fell in love with it in the same way as I fell in love with the Nokia E61, the big square modelled Nokia, because although yes. BlackBerry had pioneered the QWERTY sort of handset, I got the Nokia first, mostly because of Rafe Blanford, to be honest, just wittering on about Symbian phones all the time. Yeah, exactly, to make him feel happy, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ben. I know. <laughs> but actually then there was a peak where we had several Blackberries back-to-back and they were just the best way to do the internet on a mobile device because yes. touch screens weren't a thing and those apps were very, very quick. But I think it was very telling that it stopped evolving, didn't it? It just sort of it reached that peak and then it didn't improve anymore. Yeah. Because I was a massive, massive fan and I was a blogger, a Blackberry blogger in that, you know, I talked to their PR regularly. I would fly out at their expense to Blackberry World to cover Blackberry World. I think I did three or four Blackberry Worlds. It was a real privilege to be flown there and then to be able to, to sit and watch everything happening. But similar to Blamford, you know, I was sitting there going, ooh, ooh, oh, come on now. Oh, ooh, yeah, each of these different events thinking this, no, come on, they're going, surely they're going to announce Android or surely, ooh. And the statements coming from the company, it was just, it was taking too long. You could see it aging. It was doing that Hollywood style aging in front of you, you know, at these various different announcements and the different events. It was still a phenomenal way to do email. I used their BBM a lot as well. That was really convenient too. Then SMS was just super fast as well. The whole unified inbox, that was really cool. And then when you added the Google client on top of it, oh, just amazing. But then it, it began to implode really quickly. What was the tablet they launched? Do you remember the tablet? Oh, I had one, the Playbook. The Playbook, that's right. I mean, oh, geez, it was so good, but so not good. So at bad. The same time. Yeah. Also known as the BlackBerry Bookend, because that's where it ended up on many shelves. Mm. Oh, I just, I really wanted it to be so successful. And it just, there was misstep after misstep. Yeah. Very well-meaning people. Very I mean, well-meaning it's a people. And then, yeah. They followed the Nokia path, didn't they, of yeah. having a problem and trying to change ecosystems but failing, and they yeah. tried to build their own, um, Rafe, help me out here, QNX-based. That's right. Yeah. Operating system, which superior again. Yeah, one of those things, it was really, really good. And it was good for real-time stuff, and it was often in cars mm. and, and various other places. Yeah. But they were reliable. They really botched that, and I had a few of those devices, and that's the point where I realised it's never going to be the same again. No, they just couldn't do it, yeah. And they ruined their all-touch devices. And, of course, now they're on Android. And I did sort of think that they would end up being a niche business phone. Because I look at business phones and there's two types of firms, aren't there? There are those that are willing to shell out for iOS devices, mm. but you know, sort of seem to rely entirely on the built-in iOS ecosystem with a bit of management stuff slapped over the top. And then there are other firms, and I was looking at a friend's work Android phone the other day, which is absolutely loaded to the gunnels with special secure software to do all their enterprise stuff. And I thought, that's where BlackBerry's going to live. Mm. You know, they're going to keep making devices that are just for the enterprise. Because mm. although everyone knew them for the keyboard, Rafe, and it was really impressive bit of engineering, it was they'd identified their niche and just totally channeled all their engineering effort into that. And I thought there'll be more, there'll be business phones. You know, business phones will look different to consumer phones because they need to do different stuff. And I guess I was a long way off base there because now everybody's using the same thing for everything. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken before about the kind of, 10-year rule or how one thing is replaced by yes. the generation. It's a you know, classic innovators uh, dilemma type thing. 
I think what's interesting about BlackBerry is they recognise quite early on the value of the software and the experience layer, and that's what Bez and BBM were about. But they weren't really able to keep pace when this kind of, it was almost a seismic shift when the iPhone and then Android came along, and it was kind of that mass consumerization of apps. It wasn't just about business. And actually, I think the same thing happened to Nokia and Symbian. But I think what a lot of people forget is how much of modern smartphones are owed to both of those companies. And it's easy to just think it began 12 years ago with the iPhone and around Android and kind of mobiles the last 10 years. But I would draw kind of a portrait. And I think it's a good time to reflect on this when saying, you know, effectively goodbye to BlackBerry. Although in reality, it's been gone a while. This was just a licensing agreement. Mm. I mean, you could say something similar about the Nokia name and what happened there. I think that's slightly different because there's a lot more of the original people involved and they've got a broader portfolio of devices. Mm. Maybe that's a, another episode. Mm. But for me, BlackBerry was about discovering that you could use a phone for more than just phone calls. And that sounds silly, but when people were first getting mobile phones, it was just about having the same thing that you had on a landline, but that yeah. you could use anywhere. And kind of text came in and that was a bit there, but BlackBerry were really the ones to go to town on the fact that, and what we have now today is there's more over-the-top messaging via WhatsApp or Google, whichever system you prefer. Mm. That's probably the predominant way of communicating between people on devices. And of course, the email that everyone's now just expected to have in their pocket all the time. Blackberries really were the pioneers there. And they did have, you know, with the shortcuts you were talking about, expert systems that made it quicker and arguably probably quicker than it is to use today on devices you could triage things incredibly quickly super fast yeah but then it went to a mass market and you know bbm was in some ways quite precedent because they were looking ahead there Mm. also the way that software was being managed on the device and being able to install and uninstall apps remotely and all of that kind of thing but they kind of lost out to the consumerization of the market Mm. and it's an interesting contrast to nokia who i think were probably ahead of anyone else when it came to converging more functions into the smartphone, particularly around multimedia. If you think about music, having a great camera on it, being able to watch video Mm. to a certain extent, being able to browse the web with, you know, those early devices. Mm. I mean, the amount of functionality they squeezed into a single device, and that was probably at its height on something like the N95. Those two were actually the pioneers of what we think of as smartphones today. And it's good to remind ourselves where that came from. And we're not talking about that long ago. Mm, no. And it's sad almost because like lots of people make that mistake of attributing all of that innovation to the iPhone generation and everything that came before it. And it definitely wasn't. But also all of the work that had to be done to build those capabilities into the very earliest smartphones almost became an anchor, a drag, didn't it? It did. Because all of that design, that architecture, the way things work, when it became irrelevant, when it became out of date, weighed them down. Whereas, you know, I think particularly with BlackBerry, they had solved incredible problems in incredibly ingenious ways because the technology and the networks were not quite there. But then when the networks are, you know, kind of it was that giant leap forward, wasn't it? It was a shame that they didn't survive that refresh because I sort of thought, well, you know, what's the BlackBerry brand? Security, niche custom devices, tailoring, as you said, over the top Mm. messaging. There was a time where you know, every teenager had to have a BlackBerry because BBM messaging was how everybody stayed in touch. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's how it was done, yeah. Honestly, the fact that the brands outlived their originating companies tells you how strong that was. But it's just a great example of how technical and product debt that builds up for early pioneers becomes 
Anchor is a great word to use for that. And it may well happen again. That's what happens in technology. And you've seen certain discussions around that. I mean, I think now the ecosystem rules of the scale is so much different, but it can happen again. And actually, it can be the limiting factor. For me, this next time around, it probably won't be about the hardware or the devices. It's going to be there'll be a shift to using assistance and machine learning and deep learning. And so the kind of next generational leap will be actually the smartphone won't be as important as it used to be in terms of the hardware and the screen and iOS and Android, because you'll probably be more reliant on something that is speaking to you, whether that's through voice or audio Mm. or immersing you through always on everyday kind of AR glasses. Just a reminder, it's happened once, it will almost certainly happen again. Yeah, I think that's interesting. There's a few write-ups that make the point that the disruption comes from your market becoming irrelevant rather than somebody developing a better product that replaces you. Mm. We'll talk about that one again in the future. RIP BlackBerry. I'm almost tempted to go and get myself a second-hand BlackBerry Key 1 or something just so I could try the keyboard out one more time. But I think it's one of those things where I could never live with it. So (laughs) it just become a museum piece. Those were the days. That's what you have to say. Yeah. Rafe, one for your mobile phone museum. You must have a few Blackberries kicking about in the bottom of the drawer there. I've got one Blackberry. <sighs> Underrepresented, <Yeah>. I think, <laughs> in your mobile phone museum. It should have a much more prominent place. Okay, we should wrap up. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for everyone who's been writing in and giving us feedback. Feel free to tell us when we're wrong. Some of you have this week, so thank you very much. <laughs> we're on 361podcast.com. You can get us at 361podcast on Twitter. You can leave public comments or you can write to us through the contact form if you'd like to. If you'd like to support the show starting from next season, so we'll be on to the next season in the next episode, mm-hmm. we'll be restarting the Patreon. So thank you to everyone who's already signed up there. All of the uh, money in the Patreon just goes into production costs and Rafe's lavish hairdressing budget. Well, exactly. So I think we are going to have a couple of weeks off between seasons as we get prepped and for holidays. Mm. And then we'll be back in about a month's time with the new season. Rock on. So thank you very much, Rafe Blanford. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ewan. Thank you very much, Ewan McLeod. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thank you as ever. Our loyal listeners. Mark, for editing this and (laughs) making this sound buttery smooth. (laughs) Exactly. Thanks, Mark. Mark and our loyal listeners. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. And all you lot, the listeners. We'll be back soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Meanwhile, in the secret lair, hidden 30 feet beneath the Blandford estate, work on this week's podcast is about to begin. Ah, this week's show. Okay, let's see what we've got then. So, Ref Blandford, can we talk about vacuums again this week? I'm a vacuum influencer now. There are people on Twitter saying they've bought vacuum cleaners because of me. No. Come on, no, people need an update. The masses are hungry for our vacuum content. Yes. You're three years late to the party. It's not cool anymore. No, like, no. Honestly, it's like talking to middle-aged people who think technology is cool because they've just got it. That's exactly what it's like, right? Because that's exactly what's happened. <laughs> Blanford, three years ago, the technology was pretty poor. That's why I didn't have it. The zeal of the newly converted. I've just been slapped down as old by a man who lives in the Middle Ages. <laughs> it's like boomers versus millennials, and obviously you're boomers. Are you a boomer, Blanford? No, I'm a millennial. Thank you. Can't you tell by his country estate and extensive <laughs> stuff? <laughs> uh, right, okay, shall we do something then? Uh, give me a try. So nice. Come on then, Ben, let's see you. Let's see it. And...
Uh, sorry, I'm just correcting Rafe's um, intro. Good. If you want to get it done, do it yourself. Yeah, I, I don't like to delegate. Yeah. I like to stay up until midnight and look like <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I love you, Rafe, but self-care, mate. Come on. My dad said, Rafe sounds tired at the weekend, having listened to the last episode, all right? Rafe was tired that weekend. When my parents start worrying about you. That's a bad sign, yeah. Mm. My name <laughs> Rafe Blanford. <laughs> traffic, Sonos's customer backlash, and we're saying goodbye to BlackBerry hardware. Woo! Yeah, look, Ben, he's done two one ticks, right? And then you've got Blanford going, and I'm Rafe. <laughs> and the, 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 the. I thought that was much better that time. Let's do it one more time. Oh, for pity's sake. Just bring some energy to it, please. Just, wait, wait, like, just practice. You do your name, and let's have him practice. <laughs> I don't like it when mummy and daddy fight. Stop it. <laughs> customer backlash and we're saying goodbye to blackberry hardware that one please mark yeah you all good i could have had more from reef there but let's just leave it there well look i mean you know you're getting what you're getting basically you know i'm rafe blanford i'm rafe blanford i'm rafe blanford and i'm rafe blanford and i'm rafe blanford i'm rafe blanford there you go mark there's a lot more to choose from now no i'm rafe blanford (laughs) (laughs) didn't we once do it where we swapped names I think we did, didn't we? You know, I, I said, I'm Ben Smith. You thought it would be very funny and Ben and I thought it wouldn't be funny at all. And then we cancelled it. Did we? Oh. Because it wasn't funny. Did I, uh, did I tell you that I've got a Wombles pepper mill? Oh God, no, not jokes. Oh. I bought a Wombles pepper mill, but it's crap because everything comes out either overground or underground. Oh. Uh. <laughs> Enjoy this, Mark, by the way. This is very rich content. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's press stop. Yeah, poor Mark doesn't want to hear another two minutes of this, right? Thank you, Mark. Are we going to do a clap or something? We don't need to because we synchronised at the beginning. So, bye. Pick the pieces out of that, Mark. Oh, God. What did I do to deserve this? I must have really done something bad in a previous life. I just don't... I don't want to put it in. <laughs> Oh! <laughs>